This episode of the Out of Bounds Podcast is brought to you by Fisher Skis. Welcome to episode 201. Uh, this is the Out of Bounds Podcast. My name is Adam Jabber, and we have a fantastic episode for you today. Uh, one of my favorites of the year. Uh, Mr. Lachlan McKillop is on the show, uh, a.k.a. Spin That Up, a.k.a. Locky, um, a.k.a. one of the better suspension techs out in the universe. Uh, he was in charge of STU, just SRAM Technical University for Australia. Um, he was a World Cup tech he i mean the dude is he raced a bit the dude is a monster and he is super funny and we have a really good conversation about bikes bike culture shitty bikes uh good bikes dialing in uh suspension how you can do that kind of the thought process between uh like why he wanted to start this thing called squishy bits where he talks about suspension and kind of gets really technical um, he also has like a one-on-one suspension service. He does YouTube videos now where he kind of goes through different things like setting up your access components. So if you want a channel to go to <clears throat> for the technical aspects of things, uh, go to spin that up. Uh, his Instagram is spin that up as well. Uh, and I, dude, this was, <laughs> this was such a fun episode cause it was one of those where I just got to shoot, sh- shoot the shit with somebody that like actually gets it. Like that worked in a shop, uh, kind of gets the day to day but also is at a very high level. So um, shout out to Lockie. I wasn't sure what this one was going to be like because I kind of just reached out to him out of the blue without knowing him at all, but the dude's a G, and I am thrilled. Uh, sorry if I look pale. I was running, and running is terrible and sucks, and I'm bad at it. Um, before we get into the episode, we have some partners for today that we'd like to talk about, and first is Rumple. Rumple makes the original puffy blanket, uh, as you can see on the screen if you're watching the YouTubes. Um, they make an awesome product. They make everything from my favorite towel in the entire world. It literally lives in my car and in my gym bag, uh, for when I find that random river, when I'm driving up in Vermont, um, that I can just go jump in for when I go to the gym and I'm disgusting. Uh, it is, it's just a good towel. It's a good packed towel to just have on you at all times. Puffy Blanket is awesome. Uh, they have all kinds of stuff. Just go check out rumple.com and uh, they're having a 25% off sale. So you can save 25% off. Normally our code gets you 15 off, but 25% off starting this Friday, uh, running until the end of May. So go to rumple.com and get yourself some, get yourself something. I mean, even if you just go and get um, like the beer, what are they called, Ethan? Beer blankets? Pull it up. Pull it up. Pull it up. Ah! Gear. Gear, gear, gear. Beer blankets. I told you they're called beer blankets. Um, You can get beer blankets. They're actually really funny, and they're really cool, and uh, and obviously reuse them. They're not like your shitty everyday koozie. I'm a big fan. So they sell them in six packs, too, so you can go get those on Rumpel's website at 25% off it for the end of the month of may uh we also have a giveaway on friday on the instagram page so hit that up if you're interested um puffy blankets colors styles ethan literally was asleep in the back room while i'm trying to do this 
freaking intro. Um, all right. Next up, we have Mirror Energy. Mirror Energy makes uh, all kinds of things that I probably would have needed uh, on my run today. Um, gel packs, which apparently is what the tiny little zip short thing pocket is for. You just put little gels in there. Um, I bet you you could fit one, two, three, four, five, six, seven gels in that little pocket. Maybe. I don't know how comfortable it would be, but you could definitely fit a few. Um, strawberry, cashew vanilla, cashew vanilla mate, uh, cacao almond, cacao almond mate, cashew lemon, blueberry, well, bergamo. I don't know about that one. Um, they're, they're really good. I'm psyched on them. They're vegan, organic, gluten-free, paleo, the whole nine. Um, and you can go to uh, com, and that is M-U-I-R energy.com. Uh, they also have like hydration mix and the whole deal. They do custom packs and the whole, the whole nine. Uh, Ethan, what's our promo code out of bounds? Yes. Promo code is out of bounds. Uh, 15%. Yes. 15%. I'm like, he's like thumbs upping me in the back room. I don't know why he doesn't want to talk today. He's shy. Um, 15% off using promo code out of bounds on mirrorenergy.com. Go do it. Save yourself some money, uh, on some really, really good gels and performance nutrition items. Um, lastly, uh, we have to verify our age to get into this one. Uh, <laughs> Dangle Supply is a sponsor of the Edibons podcast. Uh, if you know what Dangle is, you are going to be psyched on this one because you can save 15% off on your purchase. Uh, Dangle makes the most ridiculous smoking accessories, like apparatuses in <laughs> the entire world, in my opinion. They also have some amazing stickers, some amazing hats, mugs uh but they also have titanium bongs pipes uh one hitters like this is this shit is crazy i i'm like it's such a weird sponsor i mean it's a perfect sponsor but it's such a strange sponsor to just be like yeah we have a a titanium bong like if you pick that water pipe up the dangle bong water pipe up it feels with water in it it feels like nothing is in it like it feels like it weighs nothing it is so insane Yes, they're, I mean, they're not cheap, but they are so sick. Like, this is something you keep for the rest of your life. Clip it onto your bike for your backpacking trip. Uh, go to www.danglesupply.com and you can use Ding Dong Dangle Bong. <laughs> that is Ding Dong Dangle Bong, all one word, for 15% off on your purchase at Dangle Supply Co. Uh, it's amazing. They're amazing. And actually, like, I got to say, the hats and accessories make it for me. Like, that stuff is so good. So, anyway, lots of ad reads today. I appreciate everybody listening. Uh, I appreciate the fact that we made it to episode 200 and 201. If you haven't listened or watched the episodes with Mike Douglas uh, and Christian Pepper, go back and do so. Those are great. Uh, obviously, John Watson um, crushed. That one was really, really good. And now... Uh, I have no doubt that Lockie is going to be the same. So here is our episode with Mr. Spin That Up. Thank you very much. So, uh, Lockie, tell people who you are. Tell people a little bit about yourself, what you do, the whole bit. Just give me kind of the general synopsis. Yeah, cool. So my name is Lockie. My actual name is Lachlan. Um, and, yeah, I've been in the bike industry for, a, like, a longer time than I think sometimes. It's coming up to, like, 13 years now. So it's been quite a while. And to start off as a BMX rat, kind of got my first start at, like, a nice little shop where I used to live. Um, shout out to Nash, who still owns a bike shop in Sydney as well. Kind of gave me a bit of a start. 
and just started fixing bikes really like I was at uni and I was like dodging going to uni or college as you'd call it to go to work which sounds like pretty silly but I just really enjoyed working on bikes went down the racing rabbit hole for a while and raced like nationals and then that kind of snowballed and uh, went on to like race some world cups not well at all for downhill but had a crack <laughs> um, realized when I was over there like hey like there are people here who are way quicker than me but their bikes are rubbish and they need work done to them yeah. and so the next year after that I kind of focused on that was like three years of racing and then like focused on going overseas to help younger riders which was awesome and I learned probably the most I learned out of, of all my wrenching time really was from being overseas like if you can fix a bike in the middle of the French Alps when you're missing some proprietary part like you can fix a bike anywhere yeah um and then yeah just continued on at shops the next wee while then uh shram approached me to run their technical university in australia so did that for five years uh and that was amazing like just showing mechanics really how to fix shram stuff which was cool and rock shop um and it really taught me like how to teach and how to communicate with people a lot better hopefully (laughs) it seemed like it worked um and then i kind of wanted to transition on really like after covid i kind of didn't have that option as much of teaching um and wanted to go more down that kind of marketing route. And now I'm in a marketing position, but then I still love the service side. So I started a YouTube the other week to try and get people servicing their stuff at like a real high end level. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the, the quick two minute rundown of Lockie. That's the, that's the general. So uh, talk to me a little bit about teaching people to service their own stuff, because I think you hear people say this a lot, but when you're teaching, it almost improves your own skill as a mechanic. So did you find that that was the case with you? Did you feel like you, like, what did you take away from, from all those years at SRAM? Yeah, I think like it teaches you what you know better in a couple of ways. Like you get different opinions on it, which I think is really cool. And I think when you work at a shop yourself, you're pretty insular in that shop, you know, especially if you work at say, you know, a Trek store, a specialized shop, you don't really talk to the other stores as much. Yeah. And that was something I never really, never really got. So I think that's a big one where you learn a lot more little details from other people in other stores, which is really interesting. Um, but then just the act of teaching something like, you know, I can, um, like I did a gear video the other day, like how to tune gears and it's super easy to just go and do it, but it's hard to articulate that. I think once you figure out how to articulate it, you realize there's little nuances and the small things that you do within that job Mm. um, at that time. And it allows you to kind of teach it. So yeah, I definitely like solidified a lot of stuff in my head. Like I used to tear forks apart all the time overseas, but I never really thought about it. And then when I came back to teach it, I was like, this is actually really like, big job. You know what I mean? Like, because someone had just literally told me how to tear them apart from from RockShock, I never really thought anything of it. So you kind of value yourself more and, and yeah, definitely learn learn what your craft is better, I feel, and, and fine-tune it from yeah. teaching. Yeah. How? So I guess kind of backtracking a little bit from that, how how did you get into servicing bikes? Like what, what was kind of the reason that you were like, okay, I can be good at this, right? Because I think there's a big gap between people who ride bikes, as you mentioned, a lot of times yeah. and people who are capable mechanics, right? So how do you make mm. that transition? Um, like to start with working on bikes, really, like I raced downhill, so I break stuff. <laughs> so I, <like, laughs> had to, I like had to learn how to fix stuff, right? Like there wasn't, for me, there wasn't an option to go to a bike shop every time I busted a derailleur right. or, or whatever. And that's kind of what started it. In terms of like working on bikes in a store, like 
yeah, I don't really, like I just built up, I was like in year 12. So over here you do year 12 and then you go to like uni. So I, I was doing year 12. I just finished actually. Um, and I built like a downhill bike during that time. It was kind of like my project for the year. And I think that's kind of when it clicked of like, I could go work in a work in a shop, but I was so not confident with where I was at. Like I just built a bike from scratch pretty much, but I didn't really have any of the finer details or knowledge or, or even just confirmation that it was working. Um, so that first shop I worked at, which was Renegade Cycles, they kind of gave me that break and allowed me to, to work on bikes. And that's probably where I realized like, hey, I can do this. I think like the fundamental thing really, like I don't know if there's necessarily like natural skills that anyone has in mechanics. It's just important to have an attention to detail and, you know, make sure the quality is there, really. Trial and error. Be yeah. prepared to fail a lot. <laughs> just yeah. test ride it and make sure it works. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the things that gets overlooked so much is that like mechanics, especially bike mechanics, so many bike mechanics in shops are not formally trained. They're just like, no. here's a tube, change a tube, right? Like that's how, at least in the shops that I've seen, that's where it starts, right? It's like take tube up mm. or take the wheel off the bike, change a tube, that's your first experience, right? And I think yeah. we kind of talked about this a little before we started, we're like BMX bikes, right? It's like you have three tools, a hammer you have a six mil and you have some kind of wrench to get the wheel off because you're going to flat all the time right yeah. so yeah. that's kind of where <clears throat> that's kind of where the skills start and then if you can make that work you kind of figure the rest of it out like i mean in a lot of ways bmx bikes are very different from higher end mountain bikes or road bikes but they're not that different at you know at their core yeah like i, I like i was thinking i was talking about this the other day with someone like bmx's aren't it's just a lot of it's done for you yeah so like you know, I had fly BMXs back in the day, so they yeah. aren't a press fit bottom bracket. Yeah. So press fit's pretty common in mountain bikes and in road, you know what I mean? And it can be done well and it can be done poorly and you yeah. can do the same BMX. <laughs> but like things like chain line and everything in BMX is just set. You don't have to worry about that, you know what I mean? But it's still there. Like if your chain line's out, the thing's going to drop a chain. So like the fundamentals are all still there. It's just that industry is so tight in like the way everything runs that, there's not too much margin for error. Like you can't go put some thousand dollar jockey wheel upgrade onto your PMX <laughs> just to BMX with a cog. Like, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, but yeah. Have you, what, what has your experience been like working, like as you're kind of climbing that ladder, working in the service world, what, what has your experience been like? I don't know, just the progressional experience of being a bike mechanic, right? Because it's a very weird thing to start, like, first you work on your own bike, then you go in a shop, and then you get an offer, like, you know, to work at STU. What what does that look like for you, right? Like, how does that progression work for you as, as a career path? Hmm. I think, like, first of all, being a mechanic, I can't remember what the name is, but there's this, like, specific graph of it's, like, how much you think you know, and then... And as the time goes, like how little you actually know, right. starts to ramp, to ramp back right. up. I think that's that's like the knowledge progression with <laughs> with mechanics. Um, I never really thought about it at the time. To be fair, like I'm probably just full millennial spec, but it was like I just want to work in something I love, you know, what I mean? and make sure it works. And there's definitely been pitfalls along the way. Like when I was working at shops in in Sydney um like that was all good and then I wanted to go do the overseas thing and then that didn't really work out and that took a bit of a blow and then and kind of takes you back um I think the biggest thing with the progression um comes down to and like I'm only just realizing it now so it's not me being holy either now but 
kind of assessing if you're a mechanic, like trying to assess where you're at every year and see what you're doing. And, and this you know came to me a lot when I was in Sydney, like try to figure out what labor you're doing per day. And if you're trying to progress and climb the ladder, like have a financial number that you can go and talk to your store owner about and be like, Hey, like, this is how much labor I'm doing per day. Mm. Um, this is how much I think I'm worth. And that'll kind of help you progress because realistically, you know, if you stay in a store, you've kind of got like junior mechanic and then mechanic and then head mechanic. Right. <laughs> right. That's kind of it. Um, you know, if you want to go do the overseas thing, like all the power to you, like working overseas for world cup teams and stuff is, is amazing. Um, but like progression wise without like be prepared to work for the first year or two, probably for free, um, possibly right. with money out of your pocket, which is, which is going to not be great. Um, you know, the job that I had with Shram, like I was just super lucky, like right place, right time, yeah. right person, hopefully. Um, you know, but those companies like that, like just reach out and network. Like if you, if you're doing, if you are a mechanic, like I'd really suggest going to race weekends and wrenching at, you know, national rounds or whatever. And it's the same in the U S and if there are those brands, they're like SRAM or Fox or, you know, any of those brands, like start networking and start talking to people. I think that's the critical part that a lot of people miss. It's like, Oh, I, you know, I wish I knew about that job or, or, or blah, blah, blah. And yeah, that stuff's on LinkedIn or whatever, but you know, if you know that person and they're like, you're right for that job, they'll go and talk to you first. And that's kind of what happened to me, luckily, at SRAM, you know. So I definitely network as much as you humanly can and not in like a lame way. Like do it because you generally want to know someone. Yeah. Don't just do it. Because, yeah, don't just do it because you want to build your LinkedIn profile. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, go over, grab some beers, grab a beer with them, say thanks, like that kind of stuff. That'll help with that kind of progression if stuff comes up. You know, there's so much more roles coming up in content and, and you know training and, and and it's just going to get bigger and bigger right like yeah. everything's leaning more towards consumer than than bike shop sometimes so. yeah yeah i guess that's that's kind of a good thing to talk about too is how how do you think that's going to impact the service side of things as we go forward right you're starting to see a lot of the major brands being giant specialized track all have some kind of direct consumer option now right where it's it's not a true direct-to-consumer. It's you ship to the retailer, they build it for you, and then they go from there. But I think it's inevitable that we start to see a direct-to-consumer option from a lot of these brands. So mm. do, how how do you feel about that? How do you think that's going to impact the need for service in shops? I, I Personally, I love it. Like a lot of shops are apprehensive. <clears throat> and look, I get it, right? You feel like a business for, based around another business that's now like, we're going to go sell to your customers directly. Like I kind of get the you know, the hate towards that. But for me, like, it's still a bike to be serviced at the end of the day. And I think that's mm. the way that it should really be looked at. Like, if you go buy a Canyon online, that person's still got to go to a shop. They're going to go to the shop that's nice to them as opposed to the ones like, e, you bought a Canyon, sure. you know. And I think it's just such a um, a narrow mindset to, to think that that stuff's bad. Um, I think if anything, you know, bikes are getting more and more high tech and people going direct to consumer, they'll probably start to realize the value of bike mechanics more. May take a little bit, but you know, you get your whatever bike out of the box um, and the brake needs a bleed or the headset's loose on an aero road bike. Like you have to go to a shop nowadays. You can't just wing that stuff. So I don't necessarily think it's a, it's a bad thing at all. It's just framing it correctly. Um, mm. My old employer and man in Sydney, like, he changed all his SEO at the time to be like Canyon Service Center. And we service Canyons and we got a lot of Canyon people in there. And like, we got some really loyal customers who were Canyon riders. Like we 
if we were to take the approach of like direct to consumer is bad, we wouldn't have had that. And that would be service dollars, not the till. So I think, you know, from a service side, just focus on the service dollar. It doesn't matter where the bike came from. They could have bought it secondhand, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Yeah. No one's got the same like hate towards secondhand. Like Yeah, that's true. It's weird. I, I don't I don't necessarily understand where it comes from either because we kind of have the same mindset where it's like, all right, it, you know, you bought a bike from us, cool. But in my mind, I would almost rather someone buy the bike somewhere else and we get the service, right? The margin's higher. You build a yeah. loyal relationship with the person. And then if they want to buy a bike from you, cool. Like the problem with bikes is, and I think people know this, is like bike margins are very slim. Like they're similar to car mm. margins where it's like, yeah, you have to put a lot of money out there to make money, right? Like if you're just yeah. buying a few bikes, you're not making very much money because the cost equation doesn't make very much sense versus parts and service. You have the opportunity to actually make that money. So I, that's where I like, I think there's a disconnect between like that old school shop mentality where it's like you buy from your local bike shop and you only mm. buy from your local bike shop and you don't look anywhere else. I just, I think that's kind of broken and I, I don't know why people aren't as receptive to it. Yeah. I don't, I don't see it either. Like I, I the way I see the future going really is, you know, and, and Trek's kind of spearheading this is you're going to have, it's going to be like the car industry, right? Like you're going to go have your Trek shops or like, you know, there's car places across the road where I live, like your Nissan stores or whatever. And then you're going to have like your boot, not boutique, but like, you know, your standalone mechanics. And I think that's how it's kind of going to go on the bike industry. It's going to be the big brands and there's going to be the smaller boutique kind of shops. And I think at the end of the day, those smaller ones that focus on, on workshop are, are probably going to have a, a healthier, more consistent cash flow than, than bike sales themselves. Mm. Um, you know, you're not going to have the good mechanics at a lot of those concept stores because there is a system and, and, you know, rigid constraints and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, I, I that's kind of how I see it going a lot like the car industry. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I don't see any reason why people would be so hurt about that. Like I get that, that like the model has been there for long enough where people mm. are committed to that model. And, and obviously you create a system. It's very hard to change systems as a whole, whether it's in service and sales or anything, or, I mean, even if like workflow, right? Like somebody changes your workflow, you're completely thrown off, especially like yeah. for me as a mechanic, like if somebody changes, like pulls me off and I have to go like on the floor I'm like, fuck, like, fuck everything. Like, I don't want to do this. This is terrible. Like, I don't want to talk to somebody. I'm trying to like do something that's annoying me already. Like it's, yeah. it's very, it's the same idea, right? You're throwing the system off and, and I get that part of it, but I guess I, I hope to see people start to, to realize that more and more, but I don't think COVID helped that. I think it hurt it for mm -hmm. a lot of shops, yeah. right? Like I think COVID put this mindset in people's heads that, oh, everybody's always going to buy a bunch more bikes now. And I don't think that's the case at all. No, like I was just reading a thing about inflation this morning and like yeah. interest rates and like, you know, that's scary in itself. And then the, yeah, I think the big, the best part of COVID and, and people who ride going to hate me saying this was the lack of supply. Like the <laughs> demand was at this all time high, but the supply was coming through drips and drabs. So there was a scarcity right everyone's like i need to get it when it's there and mm. i think if that stock was there to start with and you know the market would have been flooded and that, that would have just happened earlier but as the supply comes back now that's what's going to happen you know the the demand's lowering because the supply is there yeah. um like covid was crazy with bikes man like i just can't believe it. like of all of the options that went through my head when that hit the last thing i was like thinking was like bikes are going to get real popular <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Same. I was like worried that like we're going to close down shop. Like it's not like, I don't know. It, it was a very different for the like three weeks where everything was kind of shut down. I was like, fuck, yeah. we have a lot of inventory on the floor. Like th this sitting here is not good. Like this is bad. And then, you know, three weeks later, you're like, oh, everybody's basically just throwing their credit card through the door at you, you know, like, they're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they're like, and you're returning any bike. They don't even care what they get anymore. It's, it's insane. And now, now we're at this point where you know, I use this, I just talked to John Watson a little while ago and I would kind of use the same example where it's like Santa Cruz raised prices 7% two weeks ago. Hmm. It's been 14% or something like that over the last six months. It's, you're starting to see this crazy inflation in bikes and in parts where it's going to deter people now from buying bikes or they've already bought something else with their money. Right. Yeah. Like I think, you know, now everything's opened up, you know, the bike was this perfect tool to, to isolate from other people, but the world's kind of opening back up to all the other sports. You know what I mean? Like a lot of those people were into other sports before, whether it be soccer right. or football or, or whatever. And I think a lot of people start going back to those as well. You know what I mean? Not, not all of them. I hope a lot of them stay in bikes, but sure you know, you are going to have those percentages going, going back. You know what I mean? And that means more secondhand bikes on sale, which will lower the price of those. Like secondhand bikes were selling for like nearly as much as so crazy. new bikes. Yeah. Like, you see, I saw a tarmac on like Facebook marketplace for like 20 grand the other day <laughs> and it was used. And I was like, who's spending 20 grand on a used bike? But, um, you know, that all just start to start to all change, you know, a, a fair bit. And yeah, like I was the same when COVID hit, I was like, I had this dream job at Tram and I was like, that's it. I'm gone. Like, you know, <laughs> I always had this like imposter syndrome and I was like, I'm going to get fired. This it. And like, they were so good with that stuff. Like it was amazing. But yeah, those first couple months, like, Ooh, let's see where this goes. And then it obviously just went crazy. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, yeah, it's, it's a very weird, weird position for anybody that's in inside the bike, bike industry to be in, because it's like, now everybody wanted to be a part of this club and everybody wanted to be involved in this very niche sport. But I think in a lot of ways it, it normalized cycling worldwide mm. for people, right? Like it's people understand that you're hearing less of that. Like, Oh, that bike costs $2,000, like $2,000 mm. for a bike. I can buy them. I used to hear it every day. It was like, I can buy a motorcycle. I can buy a motorcycle. For that. Yeah. I, can buy, I can buy a dirt bike for that. Like it doesn't have a motor. Yeah. And, and like, you don't hear that nearly as much. Now people understand it, ha it like it happened every day. It was somebody just walking in. We have a pizza shop next to us, so like come in from the pizza shop, just looking around. It's like four thousand dollars, and in my head, I'm like four thousand dollars is not that big of a deal. It's like it's a mid level bicycle, you know? Yeah, it's dude. Uh, that's so funny. I literally work next to pizza shop. <laughs> yeah, the same thing. Like Thursday night was like late night shopping, and same thing. It's like I don't even get a motor for that. I yeah. love it. You can go around the world. Yeah. Oh, it's thing. the same. Uh, that kind of shit is the same no matter where you are. I promise that. That's like the universal. Like that's everybody's comparison. And and now mm. you know they're kind of right. You can buy an e-bike, and it's essentially a a motorbike, and that's that's kind of grown the sport as well. Well, e-bikes are sick, and I was like, I have a, a big theory with e-bikes, right? Because e-bike customers love spending cash, right? <laughs> right. But like. The entry level, like an entry level bike, let's say like a cheap Kmart bike or like a Walmart bike is like over here, it's like 150, 200 bucks. Like right. Maybe let's say an entry level Trek or something like $500. Then you go look at like a 14 grand Trek slash with flight attendant or whatever it is. You're like, yeah. oh, that's crazy. That's like 28 times the price of that bike. Yeah. <laughs> with e-bikes, an entry level e-bike over here at least is like six grand. And then a top of the line is like 22 grand, 24 grand. It's not that much more as a percentage. Like it's not 28 times more expensive. Yeah. And that's where I think that e-bike's perfect. It's like that 
entry into the market is super expensive. So the expectations are actually way higher. Yeah. And it probably also because it does have a motor in it. They're like, yeah. oh, I'm getting value. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty funny. Like e-bike customers are rad. Like <laughs> so rad. Do you, do you have the same? We get a lot of, especially near us in the like Western Massachusetts scene, you get a lot of the homemade e-bikes like a lot of the gas powered or like uh they bought a motor on amazon and they hooked it up to their 20 year old huffy or diamondback or like we get tons of that shit do you like is that a thing that you see over there nah, not really like okay well the area i live in is not like the nicest area in the world like there's a lot of just like youth rolling around on like yeah two-stroke lawnmower engines <laughs> on their bikes just to get a, just to get around but they don't go like ride trails they just like wreak havoc on the streets and yeah. write their name on stuff with, with posca pens but um not really like i've seen in the city you get a bit more of that like you get like uh flat bar conversions like yeah. e-bike kind of stuff but no nah, not not really like that like it's crazy. yeah we we get it like it's every other call that i mean and i'm not in the shop all that much anymore but it's uh it's very funny to get that call like every other phone call about e-bikes is like hey do you service yeah. e-bikes what kind of e-bike is it right you ask that question yeah and then it's like oh i I bought a motor i built it myself like it's it's that kind of stuff it's <laughs> it's insane and you're just like i wow i don't want to be a dick like i don't want to turn away service by the same token that we just talked about but i also don't want to spend yeah. two hours changing your tube because you have everything rigged up like an explosive almost you know like it's <laughs> it's it's so Literally. i'll take a picture and i'll send one to you the next time that i see one because they're so crazy to look at. So, dude, yeah, I would. We like, we, like when I was in Sydney, you'd get a little bit here and there of that stuff, like before e bikes were like a thing thing. But, like, yeah, like I hate turning away work, but I'd pretty much like flat out refuse them in the end because they just have a <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Like, if I and, and I got good at saying no as well, which I think is a good skill as a mechanic, but it's just like, you know, if I worked on a Bosch bike and like I took the battery out wrong and I crimped a cable. I can replace that Bosch wiring kit. Right. You know I mean? Like I can right. call up Bosch and be like, Hey, if I've got, you know, ding wow industries or whatever it is <laughs> set up on a bike, I can't call them up to get the spare part. <laughs> so I'm screwed. So that's kind of how to explain it to people. It's like, Hey, like if this isn't a, like, a, like a brand that we deal with, like I can't work on it. Cause if I fuck up, I can't fix it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> that sounds so scary. That literally sounds like, bombs driving around oh they and they basically are there you'll see them on like the highways and like the the throughways and shit like that just pulled over the bikes upside down they're like smashing it with whatever was in their pack <laughs> it's just like it, it's so crazy to me that this exists but it's at the same token give them a lot of props because they're making it work with what they got like they're running what they brought you know yeah Give that guy a job, man. He's probably gonna be pretty good at fixing bikes. They can rig that all right, up. Fucking, fucking all right. relax. All right, let's not go that far. <laughs> Maybe, but I mean, who knows? It's uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's very interesting. Anyway, um, back to like actual mechanicing and kind of talking about this kind of stuff. Why did you decide that you wanted to start Squishy Bits? Start your own YouTube channel? Why? Why did you feel that that was a valuable thing to put out into the world? Yeah, like the squishy bits one would been in my head for a while. So like I had this space firstly like to do workshop stuff and then that didn't really work out with the employer I was at at the time. So I kind of had this like space that I wanted to use, which was like the YouTube side, which I'll get into. But like the squishy bits one, just from working it, 
when I was at SRAM doing SHU, like we did a suspension practical on the last day and it just blew my mind, like how many mechanics just didn't play with their suspension. Like I just assumed all mechanics rode like I do, like all the time <laughs> and always want to tinker with stuff, you know what I mean? And like when it comes down to it, like a lot of people are time poor and you know, when they ride, they don't want to go play with their rebound for half an hour. They just want to go shred trails. Right. But I was like, well, if the mechanics aren't doing this, like the customers aren't 100%, then no one's going to be touching it if the guy sold them the bikes. Like, oh, you set up and off you go. And even then, like, you know, bikes from the box aren't set up right either way. And like, I've seen it at shops all the time. Like, someone comes in, oh, my shock's blown up. It's like, nah, they're just the person who sold it to you just didn't change the rebound from all the way open, which was the way yeah. it was done yeah. from, from, the fact, from the factory, right? So, yeah, it got me thinking a lot. And like, I work with suspension with, with riders all the time at events. And they, you know, just wouldn't know the, the like the, the bet, like the minimum stuff, like SAG. I mean, that's why I did that. Like, it's like a stupidly long video on SAG, it's like 14 minutes. But, you know, it's like, yeah, my fork's diving or it's this or, you know, usually it's, oh, it's not soft off the top, my arm's getting sore. And you're like, okay, cool. It's probably just, you haven't been training enough and your arm's sore. But, you know, cool. What, what, what SAG are you at? Like, what, what's that building, like that foundational step? Like, what SAG are you at? And I reckon like 80% of people have no idea where they're at with it. Right. And it's like, well, if you don't know what that is, like how do I know what's going to be happening with your suspension? You know, like if your sag's too high and you're at 10% and the fork's too harsh, cool, let's drop the pressure. Right. If it's too, you know, you got too much sag and the thing's bottoming out, let's add pressure. Like it's just a place to kind of start. So with the squishy bit thing, I was like, well, you've spent like four or five grand on all your suspension. Like if you <laughs> buy the top level rock shop stuff, it's expensive. Yeah. And then you set it up once and then that's it. And like, maybe it is perfect. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't perfect. Like, so I kind of set it up in a way that it's like, it's not me telling people like, hey, this is how you run your suspension. Because I have no idea how that person's going to ride on the bike. Like suspension's this <clears throat> crazy dynamic thing that, you know, at the end of the day, I could weigh the exact same as you and be the exact same height. But our flexibility changes, you know, my flexibility from day to day changes enough, let alone, you know, between two different people. So the way that that dynamic body weight is going to be moving on the bike is so different. So I was like, well, what if I do something similar really to the stew idea, but go a bit deeper with it and go do suspension coaching. So like, I haven't done a session with it yet. I've got two guys that'll be doing it with this weekend, which will be the first one. Um, but it's, there's kind of three courses, I suppose you want to call it or, or menu items for it. Um, the first one's just, you know, to explore your suspension and they'll be done as like a group session. So Cool. We'll go to a track. We'll do two laps for you to learn that track. Just something short and sweet, like 20 seconds. Um, and once you're used to it, then we're going to go back and set your sag. When you're going to set that at 25 to 30%, if it's not right, you know what I mean? Because a lot of the time it's not. Do another lap. Come back up. How did that feel? Yep. Good, bad, indifferent, whatever. Cool. Now we're going to go put our rebound all the way quick. Right. <laughs> and we're going to take it easy, but we're going to go try it. You know what I mean? Because there's pros and cons for, for everything, right? Like fast rebound is um it's good in the sense that you get back into your travel but it's bad in the sense that you're riding a giant pogo stick <laughs> so then <laughs> come back up let's do the opposite let's go slow you know and again low bottom bracket heights a massive part or a benefit of slower rebound like you have this consistent plan of feel and off you go um but that's not going to be ideal because you're going to pack down suspension's harsh cool we'll come back up and then we'll start to dial that in a bit more and kind of go from there and that'd be the first session which is done as a group which is, you know, really similar to what I was doing with Stu. 
Um, and then the next one from there is just dialing it in for a specific track. And we can do it in two ways. It's comfort or it's going to be off speed. Um, the speed will be based off, off a timing system, so free lap, um, where we'll have splits. And that's for the racer, right? So, you know, there's a tangible number. This was quicker. This wasn't. And you can also make notes on that of like, hey, this was good. It was quick, but, you know, I can't hang on to this for a whole weekend because the thing's so stiff that, mm. you know, my arm's going to blow up. Um, and then the comfort one is, you know, most people who I feel do enduro or any of that stuff, just making sure the bike's comfortable, really. Like if you're going to spend all day on it, it's got to be comfy. So kind of dive a bit more from that first session into that and just bracket a bit more in a, in a few settings and see what works and play with tokens and, and all of that jazz as well. So it's more to empower people to understand their suspension and for them to make their own adjustments as opposed to me being like, I'm this suspension guru, which I'm not. And being like, you need to run your stuff this way. Cause like, you know, everyone rides their bike so differently. Like no one can really, really know that, you know, yeah. especially yeah. Like the flexibility things would be what I'll hone on about, but that just changes so much. So that's kind of the idea behind that. And then, you know, the YouTube, like, Dude, like my Instagram's down at the moment, and I really, really hope get it back. It's, it's like, I like feel the bad laughing, like, but like everybody's no. getting their Instagram hacked lately. It's crazy. Dude, it's like I'm so good with that stuff, though. Like I don't, like I don't click on links. Like I'm just the only <laughs> thing I didn't have set up was like the two factor thing. You know, I don't go creep on people online. Like I just use it for buy shit, and I was like, oh, but um. Dude, the amount of questions I get on there is massive. And like, there's some days I love it. And there's some days I'm just like, just go to a bike shop. You know yeah, I mean? <laughs> like, especially if the person's like not pleasant, but for the most part, people are good. You know what I mean? Like I had a bit of a, a bit of a ramp like six months ago. And I was like, guys, like just some pleases and thank you. <laughs> go along. Like, yeah. But like, I would say like two to three questions a day on Texter. Really? Um, yeah. And they normally revolve around the same three topics. It's, Eagle drivetrain, um, brakes or suspension. Yeah. Um, so I was like, well, why don't I just make a channel for this? Um, and then they live online and I can just send people to those, you know? And at the moment, there's two pretty long ones on there, like way longer than I thought they're going to be. But I'll do some shorter ones. Like I want to do some break ones and stuff I'd done on Instagram before. Like I'd made some real short little snippets for like um, piston massages and stuff. Just do a bit more of an in-depth. Um, but the big thing I want to focus on with the YouTube and that's why they're so long is, is the why. And I think that's what's really missing. And, and that's what I found was great with Stu, but it's missing from everything that's um, consumer facing now with the brands is no one explains why you set it up that way. Yeah. Everyone's just like, this is the way you set it up. Now, if you've worked on Shimano for your whole life, like a lot of shops have, it's, you don't really need the why as much because you're just used to it. But Tram is not you know in mountain bike it is now you know it's pretty close to 50 50 but it's still a different brand people still don't really understand the fundamentals of it so i really want to explain that to people and you know just get them thinking like hey i do have to set this up differently and this is why i have to set up differently and this is the outcome which is the gears work <laughs> you know and off you go but you know it's likely that video um for the gear tune like i had a guy comment back on my instagram he's like how do i do the gear um the b gap without um, putting the shock at sag and I was like well if you watch the video you'd be like that's the way you have it, to do it yeah <laughs> right there's not like, an option yeah no you know what I mean so yeah like I just want people to be able to work on their own stuff like I think 
some people have really good shops and they go to their shops and then a lot of people have mixed experiences um and then a lot of people i probably cater to and talk to you know probably don't have the cash to go to shops all the time as well like they're races and sure. you know, a lot of my friends live live in vans and stuff you know what i mean so kind of empowering people to be like hey this there's no black magic going on in this or, or crazy voodoo like it's just a part there is a specific outcome that you want but it needs to be fixed in this way and this is why and mm. off you go yeah and that was kind of it you know i think empowering people to work on their bikes is rad and i think just trying to demystify it all i think is good for the industry like you know and for some mechanics sure. may may kick their feet around and you know oh you and not that anyone said this, you know, but I could imagine someone's like, you're just showing them how we do it. It's like, yeah, but if they're not tool savvy or they don't have the tools, they'll probably realize pretty quick they need to go to a shop with how detailed it is. You know, that um, Eagle video was like 16 minutes on three, not even how to tune your gears, just three tips on how to get your Eagle set up right. You know, like if your attention span doesn't last that long, you should probably go to a shop. <laughs> um, if you go and look up the Abbey tool, derailleur hanger tool that i use and you're like i don't want to spend 500 on that tool you should probably go to a shop you know what I mean? right. like it's it's not like you know behind the magicians um those magician shows where they like uncloak the the trick yeah it's just more like it's kind of showing the value and, and really mm -hmm. the high-end detail of the bike but ultimately i want more people working on their bikes and i want more people to be stoked i think when i was at shram you know i i've been on shram for a long time like before i worked at at shram um, my team was helped out by SRAM and that's kind of where that SRAM relationship mm. started. And I have a lot of time, like I'll always be a SRAMy and unapologetically so, but I know the products work really well. I just hate it when shops blame the product and when it's not like there can be problems with product for sure. Don't get me wrong. But like for the most part, it's usually just set up and I just want to counter that is probably the biggest goal. You know, these products work well, they should be confidence inspiring. So shop's not doing the right thing maybe check the stuff i'm showing you and then if it's not you know maybe go down another avenue but yeah yeah no i agree i agree with pretty much everything you just said and i think it's the one of the biggest things that we do in in the cycling industry is we kind of make all this smoke and mirrors shit out of nothing like mm. for no reason right and i think the thing that you said you've never really heard anyone say like i've heard people say i don't want to teach them what we do because then i'm not going to have a job but like at the same time I, I know 10 shops in the area that need mechanics, right? Like, oh, so dude. that's, that's our own fault. That's shops fault for not being proprietors of this industry, right? Like, and not pushing that envelope and not pushing people to have jobs like this. Right. Because it's hard to find, especially if you're not in an area that's like with tons of population, like you're not in New York city, you're not in Brooklyn, you're not out West in a mountain town. Like it's really hard to find a place that actually has a plethora of mechanics that are capable. And I think offering something that can be like, all right, this is how you work on your bike is, is great. My counterpoint, I guess for this is, do you think that suspension and this is about sp suspension specifically has gotten too complex for the user on the day to day? Nah. You don't think nah, so? I reckon it's gotten easier. Nah, like, like there's so many to... settings though, I guess that's my, so like, and I oh. understand, I love it. Like I am very yeah. into it, but I'm into it. Right. As are you. Yeah. I just yeah. wonder for the average consumer, are we asking too much of them? I guess is my question. Yeah. Like I, I think if yes and no, right. Some stuff is and some stuff isn't like, and I, I won't speak for Fox too much because there is a lot of dials on Fox and you could get lost in that, but their <laughs> manuals are really good. 
you know what I mean? Like in terms of that stock setup. So that definitely helps. Um, I like, you know, if it's, if it's a customer, it's, it's a funny one, man. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I agree with you in a lot of ways. And I also think it's gotten easier and it's because <laughs> I'm on both sides of the fence. Yeah, right. so I'm, like, I'm taking a Switzerland answer, but like, you know, I think the, the consumers want high speed, low speed. I don't think customers know even what high, a lot of people know what high speed, low speed actually right. is, but they, they want the thing. If you think about like a charger unit, you know, they still do the RCT3, which I think that's a really good product for someone who does it really no suspension. Right. So you've got um, your low speed compression dial, which is going to fix up things like your brake dive and all that kind of stuff. And then you've got your threshold for pedaling. Now, I think it's important the shop educates the consumer on that, which I don't think shops do necessarily. It's just like, hey, this is a lockout, which it's not. It's a threshold. So that's why it doesn't lock out. That's why the customer comes back six months later saying my fork doesn't lock out anymore. <laughs> But it's doing the same job they did before. Um, and and then you've got the RC2. And like, you know, yeah, when you think about it, when I think about it more, like it is complicated, that RC2. But then there's not a huge amount of clicks, which I think is good. You know, I think reducing the number of clicks. And Olin's did it a few years ago as well, I think, I think is good. Um, yeah, I kind of agree with you, man. Like, you know, if you get a bike, honestly, if you get a bike direct to consumer, and you don't have someone to educate you on it, it probably is too complicated unless you know what you're doing already. You know, right. if you think you're a, you're a newbie and you go buy a Canyon and it's got a pike and a super deluxe on it and you don't really, like you kind of understand rebound, but you have no idea what compression is. Like it probably is too hard to be honest. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think shops need to, you know, educate consumers on it. But like they used to be more complicated. <laughs> like, did you ever work on like the old boxes? Like they used the to be, yeah, they used to be stupider for sure. Suspension used to be yeah. much, much, yeah, harder to work. Now service is easy to do. Yeah. It's much more streamlined. There's manuals. Like you can figure stuff yeah. out now and it's somewhat intuitive, right? The old yeah. stuff was yeah. not. No, but even like service aside, like the old boxer had high speed, low speed rebound and compression. Yeah. Like, right. Same as, as Fox. Right. And like, people just get so lost in that. You know what I mean? Right, like, yeah. So, so lost. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, I, I would say it's kind of, I'm on the fence. Like, it is complicated and it isn't, but I think I think if the brands are better, maybe even the brands need to be better at explaining it. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I think that would help a lot. Like, you open up your new Zeb or whatever and there's a QR code and they run you through what everything means. I think that would be really helpful, you know? I agree. Um yeah, it doesn't mean everyone's going to watch it. Like, like maybe fifty percent of people will actually read a manual. But you know that rebirth or the the phoenix that is the QR code is um, yeah. maybe going to help that a bit more. I don't know. But yeah, suspension is complicated, and then it's kind of not. And that's yeah. kind of where I want squishy bits. To, <laughs> squishy bits is to be like, hey, it's actually not that complicated. Yeah. But you need to kind of understand the fundamentals first. Yeah. No, I really, I really like that. Uh, that's kind of part of the reason I wanted to have you on was because I was like, okay, I like where this is headed. I like the idea of this because it kind of, again, demystifies a lot of the things that <clears throat> maybe people don't understand. I guess my, I guess I always try to explain these things to customers and, uh, and it just always feels like 50% of the time, maybe even more people are just like, okay, I just want to ride my bike. Just set it up. So I just can ride yeah. my bike. Right. And I guess that's my, yeah. That's where I asked that question of, is it too complex? Because a lot of times mm. people want, they need that explanation. They just don't want it mm. initially, right? They want to nah. set it and forget it answer. And they want like a one, like there's one answer. There's a one by quiver for 
for everything basically and and there's <laughs> yeah, just yeah. it doesn't really exist right but that's uh, that is the fault of the companies too because so many companies use that this is the bike to do everything i mean how many times have you seen that in an ad where it's like this is the bike that you can do whatever you want right it's just shops promote it that way companies promote it that way I like have this image of the high tower when it came out, like, like blasted into my head because that was the solution bike for everybody in the world. No matter what trail you rode, you could ride a high tower and you'd be perfectly capable no matter what it was. Like there's, <laughs> there's some, like there's a small level of truth to that, but the other side mm. of it is that it doesn't necessarily do everything. Well, all it does is do everything fine. You know, that's like, yeah. that's where I guess there's a little bit of dishonesty in the marketing aspect. Oh, dude, I read it. I was looking at a gravel bike the other day and it said like the do everything bike. And I was like, this is a gravel bike, man. This is not a yeah, do it's not a do everything bike. bike. Yeah, take it on the DH course. Let's see if it's a do everything bike. Yeah, like um, I, I think the thing, and this is what I saw the most with, with Stu, right, is you know, the first day for Stu was like suspension day and we, it was just death by PowerPoint. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It wasn't the whole day, but like, you know, the morning was death by PowerPoint and that was suspension 101. And then we did the practical, which was taking the forks part, which obviously piqued interest, but the light bulb didn't go off until we rode with them. And I think Got that's it. where the squishy bits is so important. Like I can explain to you that the cows come home, how rebound and compression circuits work. And you would understand them already, but if someone who didn't, they're like, yeah, I kind of get the thing. But like for me, like I learned by doing and by feeling. And I think a lot of people are the same, especially with mechanical stuff. And I just see the light bulb go off on the Thursday and people are like, mm. holy shit, that's how that works. Like that's what's going on. So I think that's where the squishy bits is like that missing kind of piece from the store level. And this is where, you know, like I was really worried when I put it up because like, I still work at the distributor. So I just don't want to piss off our customers. But like, <laughs> I don't want to step on shop, shop's toes like locally because I love the local shops around me. Right. I actually want to help the shops, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, it's not like it's this big money-making thing. I just want people to ride their bikes better, but it's a missing link that shops don't have time for. Like we mentioned COVID before, like how many spared hours in the day do you have during COVID with the bike shop? Yeah. Like none, right? The yeah, last zero. thing you want to do is go ride with, ride with customers. Like, you know, and if I was a shop, I probably wouldn't <laughs> want to ride with my customers either. You know what I mean? I'd just be nervous the whole time that the gear cable is going to compress and, and the gears go out a little bit. But for me, like I'm removed from that. I can go ride with them. I can, I can explain or build on the explanation they've said, but then they physically feel it. And right. that's why, you know, I don't want to be the guy saying you need to run this setup because I don't know what setup you need to run. I don't know what you like because right. you know, preference is a, is a big thing, unless it's racing, like the racing side, like I could probably get the setup quicker, but it doesn't mean that's good, but right. it's that missing piece where they can figure out what they need to do with their suspension. And, and hopefully it gets some more minds ticking, but yeah, you're always going to have the customer who wants set and forget, and you're always going to have the customer who thinks there's one bike to do everything. But yeah. you know, it, we all know it's not really the case. But if they're happy with that, that's fine. Like I'm, that's probably not my target market. Like my target market is the person who wants, who who you know wants to change things and make things better or, or understand things more. Um, the set and forget guys probably aren't that. But you know, maybe they'll come along on a group, one of the group courses, and with a mate, and they're like, oh shit, I can change a lot of stuff on this. You know, who knows? Mm. Yeah, no, I, I hope so. And I think you're right. In a lot of ways, it's actually getting out there and communicating with your customer, but it's hard. Like it, there's a lot of pressure on shops as it is. There's so many things you have to do to make money. Like, like we talked about earlier, the margins are low. You're working with a limited bag and limited funding. in a lot of times, if you're not a big time shop where you can make these kind of things happen. So I actually think that you're offering 
a service to all of these shops because it's mm. accessible on the internet, this is a thing that people should be including in their mailings, right? Like you don't know how to like, you don't know how to service your suspension. Here's someone who is a professional showing you how to mm. do it. It's easy access and it's a tool that everybody should be like, I don't need to go film a video now because you just fucking did it for me. Right. Like I don't need to go do this because you're doing it. And I'm helping you yeah. because you're getting the following and you're getting the, like, and people are kind of like gravitating towards you. And I also, you're helping me because I'm explaining to the demographic that this is how it's done. Right. Mm. And you're giving them the tools to kind of be successful going forward. Yeah. Like I think, you know, it's backtrack a little bit to like your comment with shops and mechanics, not wanting to teach other mechanics. Like I'm the opposite of that. Like, sure. I want everyone to do better. I want everyone to learn more. Um, and it's because I was in the same boat with some people I've worked with where they don't want to teach you stuff. And I'm like, this is stupid. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Let's make the industry better and let's get more people stoked. Um, you know, and that's kind of the goal really. Like, yeah, as I said, it's not really like a financial thing. Like I ain't retiring early for any yeah. of this stuff. <laughs> I just, I just really love bikes and I want people to get stoked like I am on them. You know what I mean? And yeah. And yeah. Yeah, hopefully it starts to work. And yeah, if more shops can use that stuff, like even even better, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's the same with that free, the free like suspension screenshot thing I made today. I was like, I was like, I just write stuff down in my notes and I was like, well, I don't make this a bit prettier. Yeah. Um, and I had three guys from teams I know reach out and be like, hey, can I use this? And I was like, yeah, like I'll make you one for your team and like check your team logos on it. You know, like it, it gets, it was getting a lot further than I thought, which was cool. Yeah. No, I think you're going to find in the coming months, like there's, there's going to be more and more interest, especially from those people who committed to nicer bikes. Like they kind of bought that tier two where they got into it a few years ago and now they bought their tier two bike last year. Those mm. people are going to be the ones that start asking those questions and start seeking that information. So I think you'll start to see that build more and more and more as we kind of go through, especially going through the summer. Like, I don't know. I feel like every year mountain biking gets a little cooler. Like it gets more fun yeah. for people. Like I think yeah. it, it becomes it becomes more mainstream, right? You got all the all the things that go on that kind of contribute. You got Red Bull Formation, Red Bull Rampage, all the events that kind of make people think bike, but in a bigger scale. It, it's really important for for the culture of bikes overall. So I think in turn you're going to start to see that kind of trickle down effect to now people care about how their stuff is set up. So I mean maybe coming mm. full circle, this will actually be, you know, people may not buy as many bikes right now, but they're going to care about how their bikes are set up and what and what gear they run, right? And I think there's another good point to be made too about the way that you're framing it and how you're explaining it is really good. Like I think Fox has done a good job with the dialed series because Dude, I love that it's so good, right? Because it's not necessarily about suspension, right? Mm. It is, but it isn't, right? It's a series yeah. about racing. It's a series about like their team and all that stuff, but if you watch Jordy go through like the differences in suspension, how he talks to them about their suspension, you'll learn a shit ton just listening to him talk, right? And and you pick up on those things as you go forward versus somebody just telling you, hey, set your suspension this way, right? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Like like I learned a shitload from Jordy originally. Sorry, just one sec. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, I learned like a shitload from Jordy originally racing myself like he helped out a lot and he does explain things so well like i remember him explaining me like what a check valve was in like yeah. gardasol car park and i was like oh this makes sense it's like he's the sense why the shots make this stupid 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 noise um you know dialed is such a good series because it doesn't really go into like all these crazy custom shock tunes and everything it just goes through adjusting the clickers 
right. which is the majority of adjustments on a bike or pressure. You know what I mean? I think right. people have in their head, it's like, I've got to go get a custom shock tune. And it goes back to my board in advance. Like, if you don't know your SAG, you probably don't need a custom <laughs> shock tune. You know, like, you know, yeah. if you're not at an extreme of your, of your dials, you know, you probably don't need a custom shock tune. Like, there's so much to it. But yeah, that dialed series is, is awesome. Like, and I'd love to see RockShock do, not to rip that off at all, but you know, something, something potentially. Who cares? Rip it, well. rip it a hundred percent. It's the internet. Yeah. You can rip anything you want. Do you know how many, yeah. how many pages on Instagram are just like, they just copy and paste posts over and over again so that they gain a following. I'm not saying do that, but like yeah. the no, format's yeah. there, I, right? Like use the exactly. format. Yeah. Like they did such, such a good job. And I think, you know, I really hope that's going to start empowering people in itself. You know what I mean? Like, Hey, this, isn't as crazy as what we think the conversations that Jordy's having with athletes aside from the like the and the noises like they're not crazy conversations like you know it's the same thing i've heard him say it's like it's more translating what people are saying as opposed to you know um knowing um but yeah like that series is is rad like i've got all the time for it and like as a devout shammy like i feel a bit bad watching (laughs) sometimes but like i knew Jordy for a long time before i worked at shram so um yeah, I don't feel bad. At the you're same being time. you're being yeah, loyal. That's all one. it is. It's loyalty. Yeah. I yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's very interesting to me, and I I hope people kind of I hope more brands start doing this kind of stuff, and I think you're starting to see it. But and even like I mean, Park Tool, like with Calvin, it's like that you find a way yeah. to connect with people at a simple level, and then you can yeah. kind of build from there and get more technical if you want. Like there's something for everybody, right? There's people that like the dialed mm. series and there's people that like what Calvin does where he's like, Hey Jim, how do my derailleurs not working? What do I, you know, it's like, it's hilarious. And he's hilarious because <laughs> I love those. Yeah. he turns yeah. it on and it's, yeah, I saw him at Seattle a few weeks ago and he's like, it's, it's hilarious. Cause you talked to him before and he's like, calm, he's a regular guy. And then as soon as he turns it on, he's like, he was talking to me with a fucking puppet. And I'm like, this is hilarious that this is how, <laughs> this is how he turns it on just like that. And he's, it's not like he's like a, I don't know. I, I can't imagine he was a content creator in his youth. It's just, he's picked this <laughs> up and he, he's <laughs> He's had this, like he just figured it out. So I guess there's, there's stuff for everybody. And I'm really happy that, that, that kind of, that, that kind of thing exists more and more in cycling now. Definitely. Like, you know, you're saying mountain bike gets radder and radder every year. I agree. Um, But like the professionals in mountain biking, like, it's not like you watch drive to survive, right. And like those people are like over there, like bike riding professionals aren't like that. Like, you know, not being like check me out but like i know a few of them and they're all just rad humans who for are sure just like you and i you know what i mean so i think those series as well really help to just show that like hey like those guys like they're quicker than you for sure like but they're not that far away like they're just normal people right. and i think that's really cool you know side product of those event-based ones as well like these are normal people and they're probably having the same problems as you on a track it's just they're riding a shitload faster <laughs> but they still tweaking things. You know what I mean? Like everything's yeah. not perfect all the time. So the know, relatability. Yeah, yeah. Relatability is kind of a key factor. Like it's, it's much better in cycling than it is in, in mainstream sports and same skiing and snowboarding and all this stuff. Like these are real people, real humans that you can interact with and they're very accessible to you. And I think, I think that part's very, uh, it, it's very cool. Um, mm. Last thing I'll, I'll ask you about, and then I'll let you get out of here. SRAM breaks. 
Um, I, I don't, (laughs) they're not all bad. Okay. I don't think they're all bad. I'm not even going to say the majority, actually the majority of them, especially in 2022 are good. What level SRAM levels? What the, like, what, is there a trick that you have that I haven't figured out to make them fucking stop? Like, and stop. I'm a bigger person. I'm, you know, I'm 220. Like Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm heavier and I ride reasonably hard. Right. I can't buy stopping power with those things Mm. versus there's other lightweight brake options that I find can give you that same thing. And then I hear people's arguments online. It's like, Oh, you get modulation. I'm like, okay, modulation only means so much if there's no power to actually stop when you need to stop. Right. And that's, I guess I, I always wonder, is it just me? Is there something that you can do better? What's and obviously like at the very simple level, like bleeds, being done correctly and you know pads mm. being new and all that stuff it's just i i wonder if there's like an in-house type of thing that you guys have found that makes those perform better than than others it's a big question because there's so much that can go into that like yeah i'm assuming the bleed and everything's done right. um the other important steps really that piston massage and obviously making sure both pistons are doing doing this as opposed to like that right. old haze soul break doing this like if it's doing that or even close to doing that you're losing a lot of power um what size rotors are you running on it uh so i have a blur so it come right now so it came with 160s which i'm going to problem right there yeah exactly i'm changing i'm changing them but i guess i find it on other bikes too like bikes that come stock out of the shop where i i find this issue with 180s and i i almost find that people have to up their rotor size with those brakes mm. to get the stopping power that they're looking for. And a lot of times I think they just end up on bikes that maybe don't, that they don't belong on. Right. Like they just yeah. end up on like a giant trance or they end up on a Trek fuel. And realistically like that, that bike is more suited for a guide or a G2 or a code even, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. And maybe that's part of the reason that they get kind of a bad rap, but I, I don't know. That's rotor size, obviously being an important factor. But yeah. It's such a, it, it's so hard with like OEM bikes, right? Like right. And what level, what level levels are they? <laughs> what, like, what, <laughs> in the what model, what model are they? Uh, yeah, exactly. Like on mine, they're like level ultimate. Like they're the, they're the ultimate. Dope, yeah. yeah. They're the dope ones. I mean, they're fucking, yeah. they're, and they're, and I will say they're the best levels that I've ever had, yeah. but they're still yeah. like, I'm coming off of a tall boy with hopes on them. It's, it, you know, the, the power is very different, right? I think between, mm. and granted, you're not comparing apples to apples necessarily. It's just that yeah. when you ride a bike that's as capable as a lot of those Santa Cruz bikes or a lot of the Revel bikes or mm. any full suspension that's built well and that has a suspension platform that's constantly active, you stopping power becomes so much more important, you know? And yeah, yeah. I think that's where the variability with those confuses me a little bit. And I just, I haven't figured it out yet. And I guess... That's why I'm asking because I always shit on them and I feel bad shitting on them because I'm like, maybe they are good, right? Like maybe, maybe it's just me and I I don't know. I'll grab, let me grab a set out. I've actually got one somewhere. I think it's good. Um, Like the levels are a funny break, right? Like they are the XC focus break um, and they, the the focus with them is to cut weight. Right. That's it, right? So you ditch a piston, but even like in the lever up here, like they're really, they're grossly different to what you get on a g2 right so these are actually more of an inline design from where the pivot point is here to the plunger mm. get in the camera pivot point plunger 
The G2s actually have a little swing link in them. And that swing link is what gives you the modulation. These don't necessarily have that. So like they're kind of like on off. They don't really give you the modulation that a G2 will. So um, they, if you've got a 160 rotor, these come stock with organic pad or like semi-organic pads, like the gray ones. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, especially for you, if you are heavier, that organic pad like off the top will have bite. But once it gets hot, it starts to actually lose a bit of power. So, you know, it's it's probably like a combo of like, look, that brake's probably not perfectly suited to that bike, in all honesty. Um, a bigger rotor size, like you're looking at an OEM spec where someone's gone down the price list and like 160 rotors are cheaper than 180. Let's go with the 160s. And then, you know, because Europe loves weight on bikes, we need to keep the bike weight down. So we're going to go with the levels because the levels aren't, you know, drastically cheaper than a G2 or anything like that. You know, the level ultimate, like this one here, like carbon blade and titanium bolts yeah, and all the fanciness. Yeah um but you know they kind of they kind of are a weird break like the the caliper is the same as the road caliper yeah um literally the same thing just for a different mount um and then yeah you do lose a bit of power in the lever so there's a couple like i definitely suggest going bigger rotor size like i don't think 160 rotors have a place on any bike anymore to be completely honest (laughs) and that's not being mr judgy but it's just like i agree wheels Wheels got bigger. Like 160 were okay when they were 26 inch wheels, and now we have these bigger wheels with more weight because the tire. There's so much more inertia on them, yeah. uh, on the system that I just don't think 180 should exist except for road. Um, so I'd probably go up to a 180 or even like a 200. Like I love over rotoring the bike yeah. because you just get so much more power. A good out thought, of your actually. Yeah. And there's nothing more confidence inspiring than being able to stop when you want and being able to stop real quickly. Like, you know, if you're, if you do have that issue with your brakes and you're not stopping as quickly as you want, like you got to come into sections hesitant, right? If you come in with a massive big old rotor that's cooling down, you can stop when you want, like you can hit right. stuff way quicker. So I'd definitely go up in rotor size. I definitely check the calipers. Uh, the, the pistons are moving evenly. Um, could be worth changing to a scented pad if you're going to change your rotors as yeah. well. Like, metallic pads will make more noise off the top but once you put the heat into them they will have a better um like yeah, biting power the... to them um organic pads like those power pads like for me i don't mind them i have i usually run them stock at the start and then change my rotor pads go back to scented um but i weigh like 75 kilos so i don't know what that is in pounds but um i'm i'm a little man not, <laughs> like, yeah not, like, not 200 yeah yeah, yeah, I'm like average height. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm like right. 170. I think I'm like five nine, right? Like right, 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 right. Um, so that kind of works for me. But yeah, like scented bigger rotors, especially like those HS2s, might be good to try. Like thicker rotors yeah. as well, because they'll distribute heat. Even going for like a 160. I don't know if you're on the HS2s now, but the 160 version of that is better than the centerline because yep. they're thicker, so they distribute heat. But yeah, I'd probably ditch the I ditched the one. Is it 160 front and rear or 160? 160, well, so rear? it's a new bike. I will say, like, it's a brand new bike. Like, I bedded the pads and all that stuff, obviously. But, like, yeah. the it came stock 160 front and rear. And immediately, like, first Ooh. ride, my, my critique was, like, this bike is fucking amazing, right? Two things to change, yeah. right? You get rid of the, like, brake rotor size needs to go up. Like, it's too small front and rear. And then yeah. it runs a Fox transfer SL, which is the worst dropper post ever made. Like that only goes up and down. Like yeah, it's right. so, why only up and down? Like, I don't understand. Oh, is that that real lightweight one? It's a super light one, but like only yeah. all the way up and only all the way down is so annoying. Like, I didn't think it would be annoying when I read the spec. I was like, it'll be, it'll be fine <laughs> because you buy, just because you buy a slightly less gunned bike, like a slightly less suspension bike 
it doesn't mean that your riding style changed. Like I switched from a Revel Rascal down to a Blur. That doesn't mean I stopped riding the way I would ride my Rascal. Like I still want to ride. No. <laughs> I still want to ride the way I ride. I, and yes, I want it to be more, I want it to be a little lighter. I want it to be, you know, fun. I want it to be faster. I want it to be versatile, but I don't want to stop riding it the way that I ride. And I think that was where yeah. I was a little confused about the specking of the bike. And I think part of the reason might just be weight. It might be cost. It might be availability of parts when that came out, because I mean, that is a COVID release bike or a, you know, a late COVID release bike. So I don't know, mm. I guess there's a lot of factors that go into it. I was kind of just curious. And I think all of those yeah. are valid points. It could be, yeah, it could, it could be all three. Um, for sure. You know what I mean? Like, I think the other thing is, is like Santa Cruz probably didn't build that bike. And this isn't meant to sound mean, but it sounds kind of mean in my head. Didn't build that bike for me. you ride it like your rascal. Yeah, you know right. what I mean? Like, like right. they build it to be uh, like, and like with those XC bikes, man, like, like from the OEM side of stuff I've seen, like weight is like the biggest worry for Euro the European for market. Sure. Like the bikes have to be light, which I find stupid because like I'll get that XC bike and then just put like, XO or double down casing tires <laughs> under them on flats, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like just <laughs> stuff that would just make people, you know, like spit out their coffee. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, like if if riding your rascals the way you want to ride that bike, like I'd set your brakes up the way you had your rascal brake. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like like you're gonna be going similar speeds, you're just yeah. gonna be going quicker uphill. You know? yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. What yeah. rotors did you have on that? What 180s. But I mean, they weren't running. Yeah. I wasn't running SRAM. I was running McGurr, I think, on that bike and on my tall boy. It was yeah. hopes, you know. So <clears throat> it so was just piston, yeah, like, but four piston, fairly. more aggressive. Like so that I, I guess the reason I bring it up too is because the suspension is a non-issue, right? Like the suspension <clears throat> works phenomenal, and I don't even really notice a big difference bike to bike in that, right? Obviously, like bigger hit stuff, sure. Rascal better bike, yeah. like more suspension, better for that, but. On the day to day, there's there's no difference in my ability to ride my regular local shit on a blur versus you know on a on a hundred mil hundred and twenty mil bike versus a one thirty one forty bike. Like there's no, that's not changing the way that I ride. Versus the braking mm. power will affect the way that you're able to ride and your confidence in in your ride. So I'm obviously asking a personal question, but I'm asking because I know other people are like in this same boat where they're like, this is how my bike yeah. came up what do I do to fix it? But I guess rotor size yeah. is kind of the answer in a lot of ways. Yeah. Events. I say it all the time, man. And it's the same thing with one CG rotor. It's all 180 for that matter at a down race. And they just burnt out. Yeah. <laughs> you just like, yeah. these brakes suck. And you're like, yeah, yeah cause there's no friction going on. With these. like, they're just yeah. two polished surfaces kind of like having yeah. a really loose, awkward handshake. Yeah. Like, you, know, like, um, you know, but yeah, like, you know, I run my habits, not here because I've limited to a friend, but you know, for the most part, even on that, like I usually run a 220 on a, on a trail bike. No like, shit. It sounds preposterous and, and the weight weenies out there again will, will be rolling in their graves. But like it it just, it means my braking is consistent because I do the same thing. So like I had a trance that I built up pretty much like a blur. Like I got a Sid Lux and, and a Sid 120 and made it into like, I called it like an Anthem SX. Right. Um, because it was like that lower uh, travel um trance like the first 29er that came out it was like the 130 um, yeah and that bike was sick dude and i put 220 mil rotors a 220 <laughs> front 200 rear on that because i was riding the same tracks so i was riding like the little downhill tracks up right. The road. right so i was like there's no point in me and people like looking at this thing just like oh man you've taken down country to a new level but you know i think suit your brakes to what you ride and, and, and i'd even say in your case man like 
might in any case of going to a G2. Right. Um, I think you'd get a better performance out of it. Um, right. I'm not, you know, I'm not a big believer in two piston brakes. Like yeah. it, it does come down to a cost and a weight thing. Um, but you know, they're great on a road bikes, so like my gravel bike over there, but like four pistons right out for, for mountain sure. bike and, and heat distribution. Like the caliper is bigger. It's got a bigger pocket. So it allows the heat to escape better as well. Yeah. Um, on top of the extra power. So, yeah. And I guess at risk of sounding like a pretentious douchebag, like I, <laughs> this is my first OEM bike in probably 10 years. So like, it's, it's yeah. a thing where I'm dealing with, this is not the build that I chose. Right. But that's yeah, yeah. the relatability factor in a lot of ways where, but, you know, this is an expensive bike, but a lot of people buy OEM bikes. Like that's most people buy off the rack bikes. Yeah. They don't buy, they don't build their dream build every day. Right. Like that shit's all pretty. And like, there's a whole YouTube series with a bajillion views that you can fall asleep to real easy <laughs> at night. Like that, that's wonderful <laughs> to watch, but yeah. it's not everybody's reality. So I guess, I guess it's a, it's an important thing for people to kind of hear about, but anyway. I think enough. that's a good thing that goes back to, you know, to the start is like that's the difference between direct consumer and a bike shop right as well you know what i mean like a bike shop can help you with that and, and educate you through that like you know hey this biker bought it's not quite right yeah okay cool that works out came so yeah. like we can't really change that but you know we can change stuff at the start or we can change stuff during it like right. you go for direct consumer like you're, you're pretty like pretty locked in but it seems like a lot of them are changing now like i saw a job on linkedin for the yt um mill mechanic in the uk and it was like building customer bikes and installing the parts that they provide so I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool yeah but um and a yeah, lot of places you know, like, too yeah. are are better at that too like i mean you can buy a bike from backcountry or competitive cycle not that i'm suggesting you do this but they <laughs> <laughs> you you can do that and they will build a spec based on what's available right like they'll yeah. they'll change stuff out for you all day long and I, I had no idea that this was even a thing that they offered so i think as we as everything kind of progresses and as the industry progresses people will start to adapt their their strategies in terms of, or they should adapt their strategies in business mm. and the way that they offer service and builds and all this stuff, right? Like to me, if I had the ability to, I would change all of the bikes that didn't make sense to my head. Like I would change the parts kits out, right? And, and do it for yeah. the benefit of my customer because these bikes are not built area to area, right? Like they're not built for, we have rocky, wet, shitty, rooty like trails. Like, I mean, they're a lot of the, the riding is phenomenal in this area, but it's rocky, it's wet, it's rooty. Like that's that's part of the conditions, right? Every bike is not built off the shelf for that spec, right? And I think that that's, <clears throat> or for that kind of riding. And I think that's where some changes need to be kind of leaned on at the shop, right? And that conversation with the consumer kind of needs to happen. And same with suspension, dude. Like suspension is changed for everyone. Like you could be the same height as someone else who weighs 30 kilos less than you or 30 kilos more, right? Be yeah. the same heights you're on the same bike you got to set suspension up like it's all that custom little bit and again because it's not like a car like you know i'm looking at a car now because it's a car here but like you know the car is the majority of mass so everything's just set up for the car and then the person in it is this minor change on bikes the person is the main thing and that's right. where you know there is such a such a spectrum of how those bikes can be set up because at the end of the day like there's this huge range that is really the mass that dictates how the whole thing works you know what i mean so for sure mm. um awesome this has been great i where can people find you on the internet where can people find the youtube channel give me the whole the whole bit where can people find you on your instagram if you ever get it back <laughs> um, the whole all whole nine so 
YouTube is, I think it's just spin that up on there as well. Um, and then the suspension episodes are under the Squishy Bits name. The Squishy Bits is a side business I have, which is based in Victoria and Melbourne. So if you're listening in the States, you probably can't come and see me unless you're going to fly over. Um, <laughs> and that's that suspension coaching or, and, and kind of set up. I wouldn't say tuning because it's not really tuning. Um, so the suspension episodes are under Squishy Bits. The other ones are just under Spin It Up, but on the same Spin It Up account, just to confuse everyone. It's just to segment <laughs> stuff. And then currently my Instagram has been hacked and disabled, but my Instagram is Spin That Up, um, which hopefully will be back at some point, but we'll see. Um, I've got a Instagram page for Squishy Bits as well, uh, which has a lot of those free resources and that's where you know all the suspension stuff will live and, and videos as well um and little things i have for free on there will be on there like the um suspension recording your settings thing which i implore you if you want to look at your suspension setup please screenshot that um i don't even care if you take my logo out but just write down the changes you make because it's so easy to get lost and getting a baseline is like the best thing to do for your suspension um and then hopefully my normal spin that up will be back soon that's like the main one um, and then I restarted the one for the bike shop I have in here, which is Spin That Up Service Course, yesterday, because if my other one doesn't come back, that's probably going to be the one that becomes Spin That Up. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. I found that a yeah. minute ago, by the way. I signed up for a free T-shirt via the link in your bio. So I... <laughs> 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 how much how much crypto did you buy <laughs> oh my god oh that's amazing awesome Lockie, thank you 